Welcome into Natchez Glen House Stories. The last, oh, I don't know, people, 50 of the stories, there's been an underlying theme. And as I've gone through this year in particular, more than ever, we've had this very challenging slash interesting year in 2020. I felt it was about time that maybe we sort of tackled this question. And I couldn't think of a better person to help me tackle this rather broad sweeping question than Joe Thompson. Joe is easily one of the most well-respected garden designers in the UK and the world. And recently last year, they opened up RHS Rosemore in a beautiful garden that she's put together there. She's exhibited at Chelsea numerous times, won silver awards at Chelsea, just a, a spectacular garden designer. Joe, you are going to help me today tackle a topic that I think is really fundamentally interesting for gardening, which is the British approach to gardening, and then a little bit more over the European approach to gardening, and here in the United States. Let's hit it right off the bat. Like for, for people who don't know your work, give us a little bit of a, a background. I, mean, I, just, I just ran down just a, a, a tiny bit, people, of some of Joe's background. But how did you get to be a garden designer? Give us a little bit of that backstory. How did I get to be a designer? Well, I always loved, even as a child, I loved architecture, uh, the arrangement of space. I, My father was Italian, and so we spent a lot of time in Italy when I was a child. And I used to be, you know, whereas other children might be kind of begging for an ice cream, I'd also be begging for my dad to take me again to the, the gardens at Tivoli, the Villa d'Este, where I'd, um, I, I was just amazed he took me there once and I don't know if you've ever been or, or seen it but these amazing gardens built by a renaissance architect and 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 the whole gardens of they're full of water there were water features everywhere and I, I was just intrigued as to how this this garden could be made in the days before electricity you know how you could have these hundreds and hundreds of crazy mind-blowing water features and and you know that and and seeing Again, you know, villas and all sorts of wonderful places that we visited and and I always I'm saying that because that, that's a sort of preface to how I, I mean I, I read modern languages at university but again that was quite a, a classical education so history of art again was was very much Latin you know all these things were, were involved and and I think um, I mean I didn't discover gardening itself until I had my own apartment when I was, um, in fact, when I when I was newly married, my parents had always had a lovely garden in the UK, um, but I'd, I'd enjoyed it, but not shown any interest in the kind of horticulture side of it. And uh, I guess typical teenager, you know, typical child. And um, that then when I had my own apartment, I had this this flat roof on the top of the apartment. It wasn't it wasn't even a, a roof terrace. And I'd have been in my my mid twenties, I guess, by at this stage. And there was a nursery. The lovely Clifton nurseries were very near where we lived. And I thought, I've got to do something with this. I know this is a space. We're in a really small apartment. We haven't got much space. Um, what can I do? You know, that there, there is potential here. And I hadn't really thought about what it could be. I was thinking, oh, maybe somebody could put a window box up there or what or something. Anyway, I went over to Clifton Nurseries. And the guy, you know, it was literally just over the road. So he said, oh, I'll come back and have a look with you. So he came back and we there were stairs up to this this place, which 
and he said, oh, I know what you could do here. And anyway, he got out a, a paper, pad of paper and a pen and he started drawing and sketching. And I said to him, what are you doing? You know, bearing in mind, again, as I said, I've had a classical education and where I went to school, you you were a lawyer or a teacher or a doctor or, you know, you. when he said, you're, I'm a garden designer, I just was like, what? what? What even is that? You know, I just hadn't had a, I knew, of course, that people, that people made spaces and created spaces, but I hadn't sort of really figured in my mind that it it was a job, you know, and not only a job, you know, it's a profession. Anyway, I watched him, what he was doing, and he came up with these amazing sketches. And then I watched the guys over the next few weeks and months implement this, this transformation from a flat roof that you would have fallen off to a space that became a space that me and my husband and then, you know, I, I, I had a baby a few months later and my, you know, I could take my baby up there. We were all using it. And not only that, the really that there was this, you know, all the other buildings along our road had roof terraces and there was this whole other life, up, you know, up in the chimney pots of, of uh, Little Venice in London. And um, so all of these things made me realise that this is a, you know, this was a career that it was interesting in the sense that you could you could make a change that not not only was an aesthetic change to a space uh but that also then affected how people you know improved how people lived and also that change could also change over the years because of the plants the very nature of the fact that plants grow so you create a space but as you know you know that space changes month to month depending on what the plants are doing so all of that is a very long answer Glenn and uh, to, 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 the, to the very you know to a simple question and so what I did is I, I took myself off to garden design college and um, retrained loved it loved every minute you know I'd enjoyed school I'd enjoyed university I loved garden design school absolutely you know drank in every single bit of information and um and then I was I was lucky enough that a friend a very very trusting friend after I'd finished um the the course uh, the year, it took a year um a great friend said to me well look you know why don't you start with our garden which I think is really trusting because <laughs> she didn't know what I was going to do and and so I designed that garden and, and we built it and then she was happy with it friends saw the garden liked it you know word of mouth the best adverts ever you know is is, uh, is word of mouth isn't it and there you go and that was kind of 20 25 years ago and is, here we are now is there a moment for you joe in, and this is another theme that keeps coming up creativity is such an underrated component of gardening that and i think especially here in the united states it's seen so practical to almost a, a massive detriment to the category but whenever we have guests on regardless of where they're from creativity and gardening go hand in hand they're they're interlocked and i think for many people it's this beautiful balance of science and some practicality and good fundamentals, but creativity is something that we maybe as an industry of gardening we don't do a great job of talking about and just how creative it can be. Is that something along your road to getting to where you're at now? Did you ever have that moment, sort of that epiphany moment of 
this is really creative. I, I get to express myself through plants and design and structure in, you know, in outdoor living kind of space. Yeah. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. I, I think because it, it was that moment, as I was saying just now, that uh, this guy was creating a space and it wasn't just a, a cookie cutter garden space. It was a space that was tailored to me and to, to, you know, to, to what I, what I needed. And, 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 you know, I am, I've always been creative. I am, I am terrible, you know, on the technical side, I'm terrible. I still, I can barely work my computer. My, my great team are the ones that do all the kind of, you know, the vector works drawings for me. I still, I, I, I attend a course every year and I come out and, and, you know, the next day promptly forget it. But my, you know, my imagination and the, the fantasy, I suppose, are what um, are what's key. And, and I think that's especially important nowadays when, you, when you're looking at, you know, what I've got a 21-year-old and 21-year-old son, 19-year-old daughter, and looking, you know, they're thinking about what they're going to do later in life. And, and we're talking about the fact that, you know, try to do the jobs that, that can't be done by AI. What, what you know? What can't be what can't be done by artificial intelligence? Well, you know, anything creative, it just it just can't happen. And um, and so yeah, that that is hugely hugely important to me. I and mean, I'm sure we'll talk a lot about it late, later on as well. Give me your impression as we talk about creativity, and I, I totally agree with you. Creativity is the great currency of the universe that'll never go broke. How do you currently see American gardening? What's the impression from the UK's view and your own view specifically of how you you would you would see American gardening in 2020? Well, I can, I was lucky enough to um, to visit Washington DC in February and then go down to New Orleans um, in February. So I so I had two very um, contrast. Obviously, you know. DC in February it, it wasn't too green but um I and so so what I saw was and I'm you know I met some great gardeners and some wonderful designers and I think everybody is kind of like in the UK you know desperate to encourage people to you know this is great enthusiasm to get people outside using their to use their outdoor spaces and you know, it it was a feeling that that maybe it's it's getting clients to to go with that that leap of faith. You know, going back to creativity, maybe everybody, you know, everybody's is very you can you can present somebody with a as I said, a cookie cutter garden design and people will be quite happy with it. But I think we're all wanting to to nudge people to to take things, you know, to take to explore, you know, to take things a little bit further, be a bit more adventurous with the the kind of um the designs that their designers are, are working on and um and actually when I was in New Orleans I mean I went around the garden district amazing in the sense that I saw so much creativity it wasn't necessarily I'm holding my hands up here to do a kind of you know in inverted commas like you know it wasn't garden design it was the way people were spaces had had evolved you know front yard front garden spaces have evolved to suit those those people's those house owners um you know that their, their lives you've got swings hanging from porches you've got you know you've got beautiful pots and planters with so I saw something that, that was that was very sort of new to me which was this idea of kind of sharing 
the joy of your front garden, the exuberance, the the hanging ferns, the the colours, the fact that somebody might have put a bench outside the front of their garden for other people to share. You know, I saw somebody who'd who'd um, attached their water pipe to a tap on the on the pavement on the sidewalk side of their um, fence so that dog walkers could fill their dogs water bowls so anyway where am I going with this so there is this kind of as I say fantasy and 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 you know certainly and you want people to you want people to leap onto it well I certainly felt with the designers that I spoke to that you know there is great potential and it's kind of just really needing homeowners to take that leap of faith and just let their designers really go for it with their imagination and creativity. How do you feel? Because this is also uh, the last two podcast stories, Joe, it was very interesting. We had uh, two growers on the grower side of the industry here in the States who deal with hybridizing. And, you know, they've introduced some incredible, incredible plants. But two things that came up in conversation with both of them, and I recorded them on the same day, so it was sort of from my own brain, it was melting by the end of the day based upon these two (laughs) comments that they made, Joe, was their concern is, and, and continues to be, and has been for a while, that the plants that they're almost being asked to hybridize sometimes are these low maintenance plants that stay only to a certain size these very round compact globe looking plants that can fit on racks that go to the big box stores that are so influential here in the states as far as garden center sales go do you see any of that reflected in the british landscape of gardening right now those two factors of low maintenance and then plants being bred to just have this very tight compact kind of look where they're the, these little meatballs that come up out of the ground uh, yeah I do I mean so many clients when I first meet them say right we want a low maintenance or a, you know a no maintenance garden and I say to them well you can't have no maintenance well we could you know we could do it in plastic and concrete but that's not really going to happen um or you know low maintenance and then when when the conversation starts off like that I um I very much, rather than saying yes, of course, I start explaining to them about the kind of plants that I do use, and and that they, and and that gardens are low maintenance. When you look like anything, it's when you look after them regularly, but for a short amount of time, you know that is low maintenance. If you leave something, then it's going to be terrible, and it's going to be really hard to look after. And um, so, I but I do feel though there there is. There is definitely this kind of well, let's make everything easy. Let's let's. Um, I nearly fainted the other day on um, Instagram. I saw a post from a friend. I don't think she's going to be. She's not. A, she's not a great gardener, so hopefully she won't be listening to this. But she'd said something like, "Oh, I I find my house plants always die. So here are these. You know, look at these great plastic ones that I put on a shelf above my my cookery in my kitchen from mm-hmm. whichever supermarket it was." And I just sort of sat there with my head in my hands thinking, mm. oh, my God, you know, on so many levels, this this is wrong. Anyway, I'm, she's a friend, so I'm not going to take her up on it. But, um, but uh, yeah, so, and I look at the garden centres and up until recently, now I don't know what it was like for last year, but certainly up until recently, the biggest, one of the biggest selling shrubs was Fertinia Red Robin, which is hugely popular with its in in the UK because it's evergreen it's got glossy leaves with a little bit of color in them 
and so it's it's kind of like a you know it's a slightly slightly more exciting laurel and that is what the biggest one of the biggest sellers is in the UK because it does you know it does a it solves so many problems. It's evergreen. It's got a little bit of colour for everybody who's saying, you know, I'd like year-round colour. Um, it's low maintenance. It's easy. It's very hard to kill. And so when, again, you know, that will come often come up with clients and I will just say straight away, look, there are other things you can have. And, you know, let, let's look at this. And let, just because you haven't heard of things. I mean, it's, it's the same old thing, isn't it? It's the fact that people go to these stores and they see the same seven things, like you say, and they're these sort of compact, neat, neat things and neat plants. And um, thinking, well, that looks good. But but I still, you know, then we we ha- I have to have a conversation with the, with those clients, which is, well, do you want your garden looking like an interior? Because that basically that's what those plants are going to do. They're not going to change. They're not going to, you know, they're not going to grow. They're not going to soften in any way. They're not going to give you a kind of unexpected change. They're not going to give you what well, they might give you seasonal interest. But um, so it's very much education of clients and talking to them. I mean, I, we get a lot of I love my plants so much. So a lot of the clients that we get are people who are plant lovers. Who, um, but also we, we you know, there, as I said, there are people who come along saying, oh, I know nothing about plants. And I say, OK, don't be scared. But it doesn't mean you have to have the same as the people that I, you know, whose garden I designed last week you can have something that suits you, that suits your house, that suits the location. I promise you it's not going to be hard. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll take it from there. And if you're, and I, you know, if the client is like present or involved in the, I'm not saying the client should be planting their gardens, but if they're there and they see that pot that turns up, they, they're then invested in it they you know hopefully I mean this is a long-term thing isn't it hopefully then you know they learn to look after that plant they tell their their friends their children about this plant and and hopefully the word then spreads I don't know I mean it's it's wishful thinking but I know I know what you mean I do I go I think it's a I, I think it's a big challenge that I will see through social media Instagram in particular there's a bit of an and, and my favorite plant for this show are the poor epimediums, which regardless of everyone in the plant world's wanting for epimediums to become popular, it just seems like it struggles to gain traction. That yeah. everyone looks sometimes at a plant as just a flower and not as Ooh. part of a larger painting and tapestry of other plants. And as you're dealing with clients, is that really one of the toughest things to to communicate that we're not just talking about? I, you know, it's like Dahlia, right? Dahlia. Dahlia. They're so easy to to just show a picture of on social media and they become an immediate currency, right? It's a, a picture of Cafe Olay with a little bit of backlighting in the morning yeah. and it's beautiful and everyone goes, but just... Cafe LA by itself is not a very interesting garden. It's it's just it's one flower that blooms late season and that's all. Are you always striving to try to get them to see the plants as part of this bigger picture painting versus just getting very focused on like individual plant? Oh, absolutely. And and again, you know, I mean bearing in mind that I love my plants, it it's it's always a sort of um have a bit of a tussle, a bit of a struggle at the beginning with clients saying who are 
really keen to talk about their plants at the beginning of the process. And while I'm saying to them, yeah, of course, you know, this is this is this is your garden. This is the hugely most important thing. It, you know, the plants are the most important thing. However, we're not going to talk about them straight away because they do. They show me a picture of Café Lait. They go, right, this is what I want. And um, and so we have to have that little chat, which is, yeah, well, that's going to look good if it flowers for, you know, for a week in August or, or whenever. Um, let's think about, let's think about the feel that you want, the atmosphere that you want in, in your garden. You know, you're showing me, um, you're showing me Café Olay because it's got this really interesting colour, like, you know, this sort of, cappuccino-y kind of you know wow what are those colors that's what you, and so what I'm what I do first of all is really try and get underneath the um try to get underneath their skin almost like what are you saying to you know what what does the fact that you like that plant say to me that you want something a bit different you want a color scheme that's a bit different you know somebody else could show me Rosa Mary Rose and again I'm thinking okay so are you wanting to be quite traditional do you like that idea of the English country garden and so on and so so we then, um, and I know I'm going off at it. I'll go off at a little bit of a tangent here, Glenn, because I always no, do. It's okay. Just thinking about that, um, it's that uh, you know, I when I, it's a great leap of faith when when a client comes on board with with me because I'll say to them when I first meet them, I don't talk to them about what the garden is going to look like. I'm talking about the atmosphere and the feel of it, and I say to them. I know how your garden is going to feel from talking to you, meeting you, seeing the house, meeting your family, looking at the location around, you know, I know how it's going to feel. And we will then use the plants that will all kind of create that that vibe that you want from the Cafe Olay, but all year round. And and the clients that go with that, they go, OK, I haven't seen a picture. <laughs> well, you know, as I say, I don't sketch on that first meeting. Um but yeah, I'd like to. I'd like to come on this journey with you. They, yeah. Then, then, then we give them, and we have long conversations about about the different plants and exactly that. That, yeah, you know, this Instagram, this wonderful Pinterest board you've saved. This, you know, your saved images on Instagram that are wonderful dahlias and and so on. They're not. It's kind of, it's kind of misleading. I know, and I, I really try. I was just. Um, uh, filling out a, a it was a, a sort of interview earlier where, where people, somebody was asking me about my Instagram and I was saying you know how it is it's, it's a little bit of everything and hopefully not too untidy but I really think you know it's 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 honest and I dare I say authentic but it is honest you know we try not I try not to I do my Instagram you know I try not to filter things I try to th show things as they are I'll do um live streams from my garden at you know seven o'clock in the morning when most of it looks ridiculous but there might be a really nice something or other flowering that I want to show people and I think that's really important because otherwise like in so many you know social media as a whole you know you, you it, it can be misleading and just as people might see pictures of you know other pictures of beautiful people and think oh my god why don't I always look like that maybe it's the same with gardens all these amazing pictures that are posted and people might think oh my god why doesn't my garden look I, like that and I know <laughs> I completely agree with you Joe a friend of mine recently said he said Steve let me make a point that I think is really underappreciated when we now have people 
looking through the lens of social media. I, I go on Instagram lives all the time, do the exact same thing that you, you had done with your dog walks, Joe, that you, the one advantage that, that he mentioned to me that I think you have in the UK that we don't quite have in the States is there are these incredible gardens that people have some awareness of or can visit. Uh, places like Dix- Dixter, places like Sissinghurst, Rosemore, yeah. even the there are places where you can get people to see them in that painting way. Do you do you get clients? Do you see that as advantageous for what you do? Oh, absolutely! And I mean, I'm really lucky. You mentioned Dixter, and literally, I don't want to make you jealous, but Dixter is ten ten miles down the road from me, so I am super lucky. Um, uh, Sissinghurst is very near as well. Um, but yeah, you're right. And I hadn't really thought about, I mean, I've visited, where did I go in, um, I think in, in New Orleans, I went to, to Longview and I, no, not Longview, what did I go? Uh, I think I went to Longview, trying to remember. But also there are, no, that's somewhere else, isn't it? Sorry, I'm getting so confused. That's so bad. My lunch, but I hadn't really thought about the fact that we really do have, you know, we have the RHS, the Royal Horticulture, Royal Horticultural Society gardens like Rosemore and Wisley. And these are places that people get, you know, plant lovers and non-plant lovers alike go to enjoy. You know, they still go to enjoy the outside space, even if they don't like plants. But you're absolutely right. We do have a lot. There are a lot of places. And luckily, you know, at the moment, they, they, they were some of the first places to open because they're all outside. So there are these great um inspirational places that are also um in a way part of our you know part they're sort of embedded in our history and um and our so our cultural references i mean if you i mean the natural i mean going to a bit wider you know to the natural world i'm thinking of things you know like wind in the willows and we know you know we know where we know where that was written i'm thinking about um then um like right you know there's there's a great history in in britain of, of writers having retreats in their garden that they write from or you know beautiful you know beautiful gardens virginia Woolf, dylan thomas kind of wrote from a sort of boat shed and Roald Dahl had had a a shed in in the garden um and then and then you know spanning from that going back to Winter in the Willows you've got you know books children's books like The Secret Garden, Tom's Midnight Garden these these are the things we all go brought up with so as well as the real gardens there are all these sort of kind of like mythical you know uh gardens not real gardens but gardens that we all you know we you know, we'll say to each other something about the secret garden and um, we'll know what, you know, I'll be talking to a friend and we'll know what we're talking about. And it's that idea of a, an Edwardian walled garden, which do then, you know, they they do actually exist in, you know, in, in some of the other great gardens. Well, there um, are these shared cultural touchstones that uh, that exist there that I feel so often because um, we've, we've started to offer these curated garden collections of plants for people to buy. And, yeah. you, you know, I, I will say this, people, you people are going to hear me say this and you're going to be like, I'm the first person ever, Joe, to, to badmouth something that I'm selling. The, <laughs> we did a peony curated garden collection and it sold immediately. It was the very first one that sold out. We had to offer a, a second <laughs> offering because of it. But really, in, in a garden sensibility, peonies, Christopher Lloyd has great quotes on peonies, that they are so short lived in flower 
the foliage does nothing. And here in the United States, in fact, the foliage looks horrible by the time you get to July. So from a, a gardening perspective, it's not a great plant. It does. It's, it's a very brief show and there has to be something else behind it. Otherwise, you just have four peonies in a row or three <laughs> peonies in a row looking very bad for about 340 days out of the year. That is something that I wanted to get your opinion on. Do you, do you find um, Pete Aldoff's work has clearly been massively influential across the world and even here in the States to a degree? Do you find it's a little easier? Uh, I remember one of your Chelsea show gardens you used a lot of GM. And yeah. is that an easier thing to introduce almost that here I find like it's it's the main players that people understand peony, rose, plants like yeah. that is something like GM. Do you find that that's an easier sell sometimes to clients because there is maybe these cultural touchstones? Well, I think the road, you know, going to the, the it's interesting what you're saying about the peony because we did. Um, we had, I had a client a, a few weeks ago whose garden was about to be planted, and he said, "Oh, I'm just looking at the design again, and we've got no peony. You haven't included any peonies. Why? You know, we didn't talk about peonies." And I said exactly that. Okay, well, you're going to have you'll have you know three or four weeks of of, of flower, and then then that's it. Three weeks if you're lucky, and um, and then then that's it. So let's have some let's have some roses behind them to carry on the colour and you know continue you know flower repeat flowering roses. So I think that in a way peonies are well I know you just use that as an example, but um I think people once you get them hooked and as I said we have a great and um, we have a great deal of sort of plant lovers who come to us. So people understand that it might only be a few weeks of of interest but then you've got that you know it's the expectation you've got the joy in the flower but don't you think that you know there's so much joy in the fact that you watch that bud and you watch it and it gets fatter and it gets fatter and then you know it's going to pop and then one morning there it is and you've got that amazing color and then it goes and you do feel you know you feel sad and which it could be there forever but isn't that you know it's a bit like uh, the cherry blossom in Japan, you know, what, what you're doing is it, um, admiring brief moments of beauty and taking the pleasure from the fact that I completely that, agree you know, with that. Com fades, completely yeah. agree with that. I think there, there is something magical to fleeting beauty like a peony, and there is that anticipation of it. I think my concern is that what I see in the States is literally you will just see three peonies planted together. And that yeah. is it. <laughs> and then there yeah. is this, the, the yeah. peony is, is there. And then I think it's something that, that is also culturally different just in observation. And even within the United States, I think there's a great change in this from more Southern climate to more Midwestern and Northern climate that many of the gardens that I see across the Southern United States in particular are very spring loaded. Uh, the plants that are in there mm. that are flowering or have their their best season of interest tend to just be spring plants. And then there is this massive fall off come June and very little else going on in the garden the rest of the year. And 
I, I want to get your opinion on another topic that we've sort of touched on, but I want to broaden it out a little bit is I think people like yourself and, and other really influential garden designers have almost embraced a lot of the plants that ironically don't always show up at garden centers. They're, they're not that same round ball of flowers that looks perfect on a bench sitting at a garden center. How do you find that as far as sourcing for your own projects? Is that something that you're working more and more with just like wholesale growers that are specializing in the types of plants and palette that you want to use? And that's, it's sort of an interesting dilemma almost, Joe, that people like yourself might be using some of these incredible plants, but those plants aren't necessarily on the direct-to-consumer market, maybe in that same way. Yeah, you're right. And I think what, um, so we work with a, a few wholesale nurseries, you're right, we, we, we get all our plants from wholesale nurseries, but what they do is they, you know, they, they look at our lists and then, so, so some of these wholesale nurseries that have retail arms as well, obviously. And then, so they're looking at our lists and look at, and, and realizing that there are some things that I use, you know, obviously every, every garden is different, but there are some things that come up again and again and again. And they start, you know, the, these nurseries are, are um, you know, a, a sort of a good business people. So they see these plants, start propagating more of them so that they can then get them into the real retail nursery for precisely that reason, so that everybody can have a little bit of ta a taste of, of uh, these plants that that haven't been stocked. Maybe they haven't been stocked because they're a bit more difficult to to um, to actually display. You know, they look a bit, for example, I'm trying to think of something that look, can look really messy by itself, something like a sanguisorba, say, you know, sort of a tall sanguisorba can look really ropey in a, um, in, a in a garden centre. But en masse or, or put into groups with other you know with other planting you know suggesting planting combinations I suppose there's um and that's what I've noticed that the nurseries we use are are doing or have done over the last few years so suddenly not suddenly so uh, over, over time these what were unusual um plants are becoming mainstream I mean unusual in the sense that you know they're not again they're not hard to they're not hard to look after but it's just for some reason they've, they've gone out of fashion so um and so hopefully that way people will start to see that um you know or are starting to see that they don't have to use the same the same old thing I mean again we're, we're really lucky you know we have a lot of independent nurseries as well which is great because I know you know the the bigger the huge nurseries are after the um you know it's it's the bottom line isn't it always but um Whereas the smaller nurseries really do grow, propagate plants, grow them for the love of the plants and for the, you know, for the. Absolutely. The, um, well, it's, that leads me beautifully into this topic, Joe. And I think I've recently seen you post about it, but gladioli, the, the, <laughs> the, the, the poor gladiola. Um, we've had this conversation. This plant has come up a lot on the podcast as an example of this. As a cut flower here in the United States, it was seen as a funeral flower, so it lost its popularity there. As a garden flower, I'm not sure if it had that same linkage uh, to it, but what dismays me is there are some incredible cultivars out there in the world of them, in the more specialty collector realm of them, 
but they're not out there for I, I had one in particular. I'll send you a picture of it, Joe. It's pretty spectacular oh, variety. Ooh. This beautifully creamy blush gladioli. Oh, that's lovely. I could get four uh, of them. I was able to source four corps. Wow. <laughs> that was it. Oh right? my goodness. So and here in the States, ironically, many of the people that actually grow them still small collector nurseries are actually based up in uh, Minnesota, which is one of the furthest places you can think for something like that to grow <laughs> successfully, but they do it and they harvest them and store them over winter. But is that a plant that in some ways you feel like there are, there are, there's an increasing amount, it feels sometimes, at least here in the States, of those type of plants that almost the interest in them has phased out. The people that were collecting them, societies, associations, are aging out to a degree. And I'm afraid we might lose some of these really spectacular cultivars. Yeah, I really am so with you on that, Glenn. I am, um, you know, I think Dahlia's suffered it for a long time here. And then with the help of the great Christopher Lloyd, the truly great Christopher Lloyd, um, I think, you know, that I think he was one of the first to really start over here in the UK to to start reminding people they're brilliant, you know, for this colour. And I've I've been looking at Glad I mean, I am just obsessed with Gladioli. They are, you know what it is, I think, is they require a bit of thought as to where to put them. They're not easy. You know, you put them next to a rose and they they don't necessarily look right you plant them in I've got them in 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 my in a vegetable bed actually just in a cutting look bed they look great all together as a sort of mess that I can then cut and I'm, I'm not worried about what what they look like but I saw um I don't know if you know Jimmy Blake Huntingbrook Nursery Huntingbrook Gardens oh yes. wonderful yeah. yeah and he was doing one of his amazing garden tours live I think yesterday or the day before it should be up on Instagram I reckon and he was just looking at a gladiola which looked brilliant he said oh look look at this gladiola you know here it is um and it looked great where where he, he put it and he said they're so difficult to place and I think yeah, and I suppose it's like, you know, Verbascum, if you think about it. I mean, that's the same sort of thing, although Verbascum is a bit sturdier. I think the problem with the gladiola is that it can be a bit, it can be knocked by, the gladiolus rather, it can be knocked by wind. And, and so it's not, it's, it's, it hasn't got anything to sort of anchor it really down at down at the bottom because it is, a you know, it's a bulb. Um, but I, I really want to bring, I'm so glad you've noticed, you know, I am extolling their virtues at every point them and begonias i take things that i think are unfashionable or are um uh yeah losing losing their popularity and i want to i sort of make it my mission to, to bring them back and it's a bit like words you know words that aren't used I, there was this amazing but i mean i'm really here i go off again Glenn. um there's a wonderful British writer, Robert McFarlane, and he he wrote a book called The Lost Words, which was all about, um, it was inspired, it was a book of poetry, inspired by the fact that in something like 2009, the Oxford English Dictionary for Children was removing, were planned to remove words like wren, fern, um, other, you know, all, nearly all sort of all natural words to do with natural history, kingfisher. 
because they were saying, oh, children, you know, don't use them, so we're not going to have them, and replacing them with, with things like, I don't know, Google, say. And the point, and what his point was, and I'll get to where I'm going in a minute with this, um, his point was that if you don't have the word for something, you can't recognise, you can't talk about it. So you don't have the word for a fern. If, you, if a child sees a sort of green thing growing, and it doesn't know that that's the fern. It's just a green thing growing. Then they start to ignore it. Then it gets forgotten. Then it gets, you know, then it gets abandoned. And to a certain extent, I really believe that with things like the gladiolus, it's a little bit more complicated. It's so, you know, then not so many people grow it. Then you have very few nurseries stocking the amazing, you know, the the, the variety that you want. And then it disappears. Well. Surely, if we all do what was done for the dahlia, so much so that Cafe Ole last year sold out. Tulip, here's another one: Tulip Bellepoc, La Bellepoc. Yes. Last year, oh my goodness, you could not get that in Britain because that had gone from being a rather unusual colour five years ago to oh my goodness, it's so unusual that we want it. You know, and you have that big tulip mania all over again. And I want to, I mean, maybe it's harder with the gladi as with the gladi, as I call them. And the same with the begonias. You know, people go, oh, their leaves are ugly. And some of our leaves are ugly. They do look best in pots because their their flowers are like hellebores, you know, they hang. So you need to be able to kind of get up underneath them to look at them. They they are really hard to work with to make work with anything. But other members of the same family. Really. I think you I, are I completely correct on the words because I have felt the same thing. And I was, I have a lot of these debates through direct messages and texts now, Joe, with friends. And it says me, Steve, saying something and them saying something that I disagree with. That's how most of the conversations are going these days on yeah. these subjects. So I, I feel we have dumbed down gardening to a large extent. And we have generalized a lot of words. We have stripped away some of the wonderment at times from plants. And I think maybe here in the States, maybe more acutely than in the UK, to a, to a place where if I say daffodil, people's envisionment is a yellow, rubber ducky yellow daffodil that was planted on homesteads if i say iris they think a purple flower their grandmother had and that to me is is a sad happening because we're losing the nuance and literally in both of those cases the thousands of species and cultivars that exist within those groups do you, to to extend what you were saying about the words and how they are important how do how do you balance that when you communicate with groups that we do have these words of these plants that are defining for many of these people yeah i do, i i'm so with you on that i think that the um, like you say, you know, the daffodil is 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 such a good example. People just think of February gold and yellow, and I'm I'm saying, you know, you don't just have that big yellow um, that big yellow trumpet. You know, there are you've got the poeticus, you've got you know, you've got whites, you've got whites and yellows, you've got you've got primrose, you've got all you've got all these sort of nuances, and that is. Um, that is 
why when I'm I also you know talk talking to to people about I mean I teach planting design as well and but when I'm talking to the clients or to students I am you know we we look at we'll say there's not just I'll say there isn't just this one type let's look at the look at the colors look at the um look at the varieties look at look at what goes with what um I'm currently writing a book about color or way past my deadline and um and it is incredibly interesting looking at what um you know what the fact that that magenta in Gertrude Jekyll's time was was really considered rather you know rather a kind of uh unacceptable color and sort of stopped being used for a while in the garden and then um I think even she didn't yeah she didn't think much of it and um and somehow though people realized the effect you know the great effect it could have with silvers and blues and so on and so the only you know while going back to what I was saying about Instagram is while um you know, while in some ways it can be very misleading, in other ways we can do a good job with that because that's a way of showing people all, all these, all these colours and and varieties. And I um, I did just thinking back to to Christmas each year for the last couple of years. I've done an advent calendar, not just for my own satisfaction, but a sort of advent calendar of a flower. This year tulips, last year roses. Where I'm just hoping to introduce different, uh, you know, different varieties to people, writing about them, writing about what I love about them, what they do, their habits, not just their growth habits and their, you know, their likes and their dislikes, but how they, you know, an atmosphere they can create, what what they, you know, what they go they what they go well with, and um, and I hope to let's see what I do, you know, this year with that. But um, well, it feels like something like hellebores have been something that have benefited from social media. They're a great example of a plant that had, uh, I think, a very hellebores orientalis or hybridas, the nodding down head. It was sort of a, a, a gardener's plant almost. Uh, and now there's so many incredible varieties of them. It feels like it's become a little bit more mainstream. Are there any plants for you, because we're, we're talking about this subject, Joe, that, that you think that you use in your work or you, you want to use in your work that you feel are just criminally underrated right now? Ah, uh, yeah. Hellebore is a, is a really good one. Um, what, what else would I say is... Um, you know what? I think, well, I don't know. Um, I I think sometimes underrated actually has just got me thinking of the geranium, you know, the good old Cranesville hardy geranium, which people think about for different, you know, I mean, it's a very usual plant used a lot in the UK, but in some ways suffering because people think it's almost too, oh, you know, oh, mm. I know mm. geraniums. But honestly, if in doubt, use a, use a geranium. Um, so I think they are, you know, they're so, they're not big showstoppers. They don't have a great big bloom or a flower or, you know, they, they start flowering and then they'll gradually flower and flower and flower and they'll carry on and then look a bit messy and then you chop them down again. And I think that, you know, I I would say, I always say to people, well, look, you know, think about putting a drink because it will give you that mass of colour. So I think they're, yeah, there are, there are plants that are, 
the same old, you know, the, the smaller ones that that aren't such big attention seekers. Um, well, and geranium fall into that same grouping that we, we've talked about, Joe, that it's a plant that just the word, the word geranium. Yeah. People hear it and yeah. they believe they know <laughs> the plant. Yeah, they and, know what it is, and they think it, they might think it's a um, a uh, um, you know a perlegonium mm-hmm. for a start. That's what a lot of people think. It's a perlegonium. I think um, I think it's that. They also just think of a kind of blue uh, geranium kind of granny. That's not very interesting. Or the pink ones that go a bit mad in the garden. Um, yeah. So, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. I've just realized, Steve, I've been calling you Glenn. Oh, it's okay. Oh, <laughs> it was okay. Oh, no worries at all. What am I going to do about that? Oh, it was all right. You could call me whatever you would like to, Joe. I I could go by, we could go by GM. We could go by geranium. As we've discussed, names are of little importance, people. I know. I said, you know what? It's because I I spent so long looking at your lovely garden on um, this morning and I, you know, on on the, on your website. Like, oh my God. The amount of people that, the the amount of people that do it, Joe, don't worry. You're in good company. I've had a lot of people do the exact same thing. Let's talk. Let's talk about your involvement with the RHS at Rosemore, because I, I really think this is one of the things we're talking about with geranium. And, and, and last year, Joe, I couldn't. And this year, it's been epimedium. My, my two wayward causes of the last two years. Last year was iris. <laughs> this year is. Yeah, yeah. I, and I find myself in this position, Joe, where I'm literally just buying something in large quantity just to make the point, right? There's no, <laughs> there's no good economic yeah. reasons to it. I'm just like, you know, I'm going to buy all of these iris and sada just to prove how many awesome iris and sada there now <laughs> are. Do you, does the RHS, does yourself, do you have any of these kinds of conversations? And when you're putting together a project like Rosemore that, you know, wouldn't it be great to, to within the context of this greater painting, to be able to utilize some of these type of plants to give them a little bit more exposure in a public space like that? Yeah, definitely. At Rosemore, it was the Buddleia. A Buddleia is very much thought of here as a kind of plant that just grows in the wild. It'll seed itself. It's a weed. It's a seed. You'll see it by the side of railways. It looks a mess. Whereas, you know, the Buddleia, when it, you know, you keep, um, keep deadheading it and it is the most beautiful well obviously you know it's, it's wonderful for for butterflies the bees just adore it um so we so we've got sort of white and blue buddleia in in there um and also i mean there it was more i mean we had a bit of a restrictive palette because it was designed to be in contrast with the neighboring hot garden so the the brief was that it did have very kind of cool planting um but despite you know, cool doesn't need doesn't necessarily need to be just the. I mean, I'm going off a bit more at the colours about the colours here. It doesn't need to be just blues and silvers. We've got kind of peaches in there and showing how. So yeah, how how a how a colour combination can work. But that just got me thinking actually when you were saying that the other one. So when you were talking about art growing buying up all the um, iris and sata, I saw the most fabulous photo of. Um, um, a hemorrhocallus. We've got yellow hemorrhocallus in the garden at Rosemore, daylily, 
And again, they're one that, because again, they can be untidy. They're annoying because they, you know, their flowers last a day, does what it says on the tin. Um, but they can look fantastic. And I saw a great photo of, um, and I think it was in Italy, of an underplanting of, of trees, of trees in an orchard with lots of space and hemicolors of every different colour under these trees. And it looked wonderful. So I bought up, um, I think I got them from Wooden, our lovely Woodens of Wenhaston, lovely nursery, mail order nursery here. And I, I bought up about 30 different varieties <laughs> and shoved them in my garden in a kind of, in a really sort of quite a wild spot in the corner, just wandering. I mean, I think my new puppy has dug up most of them. But, um, you know, I'm determined and I'm thinking to myself, um, I'm always thinking, I will try to make these work. And that's a bit what, you know, going back to the Royal Horticultural Society and, and Chelsea, every year when I do the plantings for those, when I design the planting for those gardens, I'm not just thinking, oh, this will look nice. You know, this, this, will, this will get me lots of work. I'm not thinking that at all. What I'm thinking is, what can I show? You know, this show has millions of viewers. It has 175,000 visitors. What can I show them that's different? I want to, um, you know, I, I want to not just challenge people, but give them an idea. So that's how the planting for the Wedgwood Garden in 2019 happened, which was this kind of clashing pinks and yellows and sort of sherbety colours, pale oranges and apricots, and just wanted, you know, colours that people, I think I'd heard somebody, I'd been to a talk and heard someone say, oh, you can't, you know, you can't, pinks and yellows, uh, I don't like pinks and yellows. And so I, I take that as a challenge. Yes. And um, is that something so that we happens. don't see enough now, Joe? It's it's one of the interesting things that I don't. The United States never had its Christopher Lloyd. I, I think that's safe to say. I don't think there's yeah. there's one Christopher Lloyd, but in the United States, we we certainly have not had the comparable as far as a, a definitive voice on gardening who was also strongly opinionated. That we we we've lost a little bit of that. That, that there's not that challenge. There's a great clip actually on YouTube of um, Christopher Lloyd and Rosemary Fury uh, touring uh, the gardens there at Dixter. And it's at the time of like dahlias and cannas when he had taken out the rose uh, garden and replaced it with that garden. And he really sort of <laughs> goes out of his way to point out the fact that she probably doesn't like that type of plant because it is these very brash, bold colors of things like canna and dahlia. Is there a little bit of a loss in that voice, right? Not just Christopher's, but in general, like what you're saying, challenging some of these norms, revisiting a plant group that maybe we've sort of tossed yeah. to the side, thinking that it's all the same or it's to this or it's to that or it's out of fashion. You mentioned magenta being out of fashion at one point in Gertrude Jekyll, that, that sometimes there's this problem that we have where we're a little too like well we don't want to say anything too outrageous we want to stay within the lines of trying sometimes yeah i really do i absolutely i am totally with you on that i mean we still have um robin lane fox who who says what he thinks which is great and i think you can um oh can you hear me sorry i had a, a phone call interrupted then mm -hmm. sorry we so we have uh so, yeah, we have Robin Lane Fox, who still um, says, says what he really says, what he thinks. And 
I do try to. And again, using social media a little bit, I think um, sometimes I just get I keep quiet and then I can't help it. And I have to say something. And I think my latest I don't have very many rants, but when I do, I do. And one one of them recently was um, was on pleached trees. And I think pleached trees, you know, topiarized, um, uh, kind of, you know, restrained beautiful hedges on stilts work in the right location um it's driving me crazy at the moment because they're so um available going back to this conversation they're going in designers are putting them in everybody's gardens and clients are excited because they feel they're getting something designed in inverted commas and um and they're great in certain situations. They look terrible in other situations. And I just think, oh, it's just design for design's sake. And so I'll say it. And I'm hoping with this, with the the book that I'm writing, this colour book, that again, they'll have, you know, that I'm, I'll, you know, hopefully just point out things that, you know, just because things are uh, considered tasteful, what, you know, what what is tasteful? Surely if something gets a group of people, you know, a colour combination or a group of planting gives a group of people pleasure, then there's got to be something, you know, there's there's got to be something that, you know, that, that we need to look at. But at the other, on the other hand, I and mean, this is what, you know, these gardening conversations, this is, this is what's great about them because certainly, you know, if you imagine Rosemary Veery and, and Christopher Lloyd, you know, them having that conversation because at the end of the day, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what you know as long as you love it doesn't matter what the other person thinks you know Christopher Lloyd was clearly delighted with the way that exotic garden worked and didn't mind that Rosemary very thought it was it was um you know tasteless and vice versa he probably thought you know her her um tunnel at, at Barnsley House with all its kind of tasteful pinks and blues and whites you know it was was and the yellow you know the yellow laburnum whatever in the alums that that was really boring and but that I think that is a great thing about gardening that you can have these these conversations I was still with a great colleague of mine you know we'll we'll talk to each other on the phone and be quite rude about each other's plantings well I think it's one of I think it's one of those you do have to have that challenging opinion on plants and plantings and combinations and I, I I mentioned Epimedium a couple of times because it's still on my mind, Joe. That yeah. you know, I did a, a poll on Instagram because I just like to torture myself occasionally with these polls that I pretty much can anticipate and predict the outcome, but I do it just to see it. That this beautiful Epimedium cultivar, uh, Sandy Claus, not a great name, but beautiful cultivar. <laughs> it yeah. uh, it lost in a poll of if people liked it, oh. Joe. <laughs> <laughs> and pretty definitively, oh. uh, I think it was, you know, a uh, hundred and two pro hundred and sixty something against. So d- does that spark that, 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 that dialogue that you're having with other people who you respect and they respect your work, but you're having this healthy back and forth that says, no, 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 you're wrong on epimediums. You just don't know what <laughs> you're doing with them yet. You just haven't done yeah. it right yet. And and what is that? This is a really interesting um, conversation of this because you know what is it about? Because if you if you painted your house and somebody came, you know, painted a room in your house and somebody said, "Oh, I don't like that," or you know, you just decorated the whole room. You know what? 
it would be pretty gutting if people didn't like it. Or you could be wearing a dress and somebody's not going to say to you, oh, I don't like that dress. But if they did, it would be terrible. But somehow with a garden, it's different. Maybe because you know it will change and grow or that you can move a plant. You know, you can't scrape the paint off the walls and move it. You can move a plant if it doesn't work. You know, it's always moving. It's always in a state of flux. And maybe, you know, maybe that's why these conversations are easier, you know, are easier to have. I don't, I don't know. No, I think, I think travel is really important as well, because again, I'll just pick on them, but there's many things I could pick on that are the same way. Um, Even clematis or something that fall into this category. A clematis is not really going to show its best for several years. It's not exactly this explode out of a garden kind of plant, much in the way epimediums are, and for that matter, peonies even. Is Mm. is that a part of it too, that we're we're having people that we respect who maybe have seen something? And that is one of the advantages, hopefully, of people that that do use social media like like ourselves, that we're, we're sharing that visual of that plant that many people don't get to see. You, you don't get to see a five, six-year-old plus established herbaceous perennial in a garden that when you walk into a garden center, it just looks awkward in a pot, mm. more so than really telling its story of what it will become. Yeah, I, got, I, I absolutely. I think um, it... Uh... I'm just trying to think of all this is what we try to do don't we so, yeah you I'm just thinking of you know when a wisteria ri- arrives on site on site um wrapped around its cane looking quite forlorn you know just a stick and you're saying to people you're selling a future you know you're sort of saying to them I tell you what in 20 years time the front of your house is going to look absolutely extraordinary and bear with me but you know I know that it will grow um and you'll have phone calls from, from from that person for the next three years saying there haven't been any flowers. I know you told me there haven't been any flowers, but there haven't been any flowers. You know, yeah, I know you told me there wouldn't be any flowers, but there haven't been any flowers. And then and then you'll have something, you know, five or six years later, there'll be an email and a photo going, oh, my God, this is amazing. And um, it goes back to that same old thing, a leap of faith. And you're um, you are really relying on your own experience. I rely on. What I you know I talk to my the, my lovely team the, the girls in my team I talk to them about you know when we're doing planting designs I'll say to them you know well I know that well, I can't think of an example at the moment but that is going to look that is going to look so bad for you know it's never it's never going to it's never going to look good it hasn't looked good in my garden or it looks good but you can't you know it, it, it won't look good with the roses or or whatever it is and um, yeah so it's it's that experience of knowing but I think we. I think there is a place for for honesty, and I mean, you mentioned Pete Eldoff, and um, and I'm just thinking, you know, I don't get me wrong. I think what what he does is great. I think it has its place. I think it's great in a big landscape, in a landscape open to the public, where there's really lovely light behind. You know, you look at the German parks and all the sort of ornamental grasses there. I think in the UK we have to be really careful about and I think I have I've raised a few eyebrows with you know with this saying you know sometimes grasses ornamental grasses can look terrible on a gray we have a lot of gray day, gray days in Great Britain um and they can just look it can start to look silly 
in in the same way that you know if a client comes to me and says oh I want a Moroccan courtyard in London I'll say well it'll look silly I don't say that I'm not as, I'm not as blunt as that but we try and talk again about well what is it that you like about Moroccan courtyards are you talking about you know you're talking about the, the greens of the plants or the blues of the walls or the tiles or whatever and let's see how we can you know get elements of that and the vibe or is it just the fact that you had a really nice holiday hanging out in a you know in in a Riyadh in Marrakesh so it's the feel you know what what is it and um yeah so um I I do I think that plant, big massive ornamental grass plantings do sometimes for me just look a bit soulless there you are I've said it that's no, well no I think there's two there's two elements to that conversation also Joe that and I, and I love Pete's work I think he's going to be a guest eventually on the podcast like I, I love I, I love the work that he does I think though like here in, in my well, I'll, I'll make a similar comment Joe so we'll be on the same page with it that <laughs> here here where I'm at in the United States one of the real challenges of a lot of the plant selection at least is that many of these plants can become nearly over aggressive and what might be a more meandering two or three years of balancing that battle becomes a six month war and those plants can literally annihilate each other in one growing season because we're so warm and heaven forbid on a couple of them if they self-seed then you're dealing with that for the next 10 years so I'm thinking, yeah, you don't you don't want to put any echinacea in, do you? Really? Well, and, and I think there's also this component for a lot of people, for those of you that are not familiar with some of Pete's work, but there is also a tremendous amount of plant material. A tremendous mm. amount, tens of thousands in many cases, yeah. of individual potted plants going out into a design. And there are lessons to be taken from that that you can take at a bigger scale and bring them down to a smaller scale. But I think that is a challenge. Uh, I'm doing a major garden remodel here this fall and winter and into the spring. And I think if I, I strictly went with that kind of approach, I think I'd probably be around 35,000 plants, Joe, to do it. Yeah. W- which is yeah. just for it is not that realistic <laughs> for no, outside of those be- public space gardens. I, yeah, I have. I don't have any clients who, who would who would uh, let me supply thirty five thousand plants. I know, and yet you know, you look. But I think you know, going back to that, what I love about Pete's work is, and don't get, I love Pete's work. Don't get me wrong. In, in what I said previously, not that I didn't like it. It's also I just think right planting for the right place and you know he does things really he like had the house and worth um galleries in somerset that he's done here are absolutely beautiful but i think what i really love about his work is that and i'm just thinking about his you know his first books i can't remember what they're called maybe designing with natural plants something like that but it's the feeling again it's the feeling of oh we're just letting it all hang out a bit you know we don't need these sort of stiff massive kind of blobs of groupings you know we can have things we can have these tall plants that die beautifully and you know and and how they weave together and I think those were um that that was really inspirational to me and I think it's you know he really thinks about how they work together and I think that's what a lot of you know, that's what gets forgotten with garden designers. They forget how plants work together. And I think there's um, an interesting linkage between the two. And then we're going to start to wrap up and transition to one last topic, Joe. But I think there's also a really interesting linkage 
between, and, and I know the two of them had some interaction in Pete's early career when he was running the nursery, that he and Christopher Lloyd are both people, and I, I give both of them tremendous credit for this, and even in, in doing the project that I'm, I'm knee-deep in at the moment, I'm doing more of this myself because of Pete's influence, is looking at some species plants that maybe you would have forgotten that it's not just a world of cultivated varieties all the time, that there are these species plants out there that are garden appropriate and beautiful. And one of the other last comments on this one that I wanted from you, Joe, is how do you work with a client when there's a this balance of taxonomy and nomenclature in the plant world, and in particular on some of these species plants where the common name might be very regional based in what people might refer to it as, where there are sometimes, sometimes I struggle to find a common name for some plants, Joe. I'm like, I have no idea what you call it in a common name, but here's the, here's the, here's the botanical of it. How do you do that with some of those plants that are these more species plants that people have zero familiarity with maybe? Oh, I'll show you the pictures. <laughs> so I'll say straight away, so with a huge amount of enthusiasm, you know, we talk about, I go back to the same thing I was talking about that, you know, we're talking about the feel of the planting, the atmosphere that the, the planting can help create. And then I will show, I will show photographs of, um, of the individual plants, put them all together, you know, what will be flowering. You know, I don't put the whole, you know, the whole planting design on in one kind of mood board because otherwise that's again it's misleading because things only flower at the sun but anyway showing them photos of of what's in flower at the same time and then gradually gradually you know introducing the and I you know I always I I use the Latin name you know never the sort of the, the common names anyway um and they get to you know it's sort of slowly slowly but um but again looking like you said looking as you say looking at the um the species of some of the blocks. Well, some of the going back to dahlias. Some of the dahlias. I've got some beautiful um, species pelargoniums. Talking pelargoniums um, that are so wonderful in their in the fact that they haven't been fiddled or messed about with. You know, they are so beautiful and dainty and delicate. And I think it's it's that when we're looking at a plant, I'm talking about yeah, again, you know, really singing its praises, talking about the beauty of simplicity the same with roses you know you look at a species rose and look at its you know just look at the simplicity of that that flower and the honesty and the purity I suppose and and for them most of the planting I do it has got quite a natural feel and so we'll often be using we'll be using those very plants and um and I think clients yeah they do they they come on board with it they sort of either they're pretending they understand <laughs> or they or they do but they get you know they get so excited about that atmosphere um and and my hopefully my enthusiasm for the plant um enthuses them and yeah we take it from there talk to me about your book because you've mentioned it a couple of times, is, is are you are and I and I, I know your publisher is probably mad at you, Joe, as all publishers are. It seems yeah. at all times, but what, it, it's clearly based around color. How are you yeah. approaching it? Is is it a, a a mood tone color combination? Is it color theory? What's your what's your general hope for it? Well, again, so the the publishers, you know, they so I was asked 
to to write it. And I said, my reaction, when they said it was colour, my reaction was, oh, my God, I've got, I've got loads of books on colour in the garden and they're all really boring and I've never got through any of them, <laughs> apart from Christopher Lloyd. So interestingly, um, so as far as my, I'm just doing my bibliography at the moment, as far as actual garden colour books are concerned, Christopher Lloyd is are the only, um, are the only garden books in the, you know, everything else is more sort of colour theory. But colour theory, I didn't want it to be boring. So it's my, it's my, a lot of it is response to different gardens in, um, so in the UK and in the States, there's going to be a US edition. So, so that's lovely. I've been writing about some fabulous um, American designers and, um, and it's a kind of lyrical, it's lyrical. It's talking about color combinations. I'm looking at different, you know, so I'm, I've, I've, it's a study of, of um, a number of different plantings and gardens. Um, so it's my, as it's, it's my response to that. So hopefully it might be a good read rather than, you know, what it, what it is not is a technical book. Um, we don't, I kind of, my, my premise is, okay, um, we've, we've gone beyond Isaac Newton. <laughs> How, how's that for, <laughs> for daring? But, you know, that's why, you know, the, I thought I was the only person in the world to not understand the colour wheel because I look at it and I get that, you know, things opposing, you know, about opposing colours and so on and so on. But then you go to all the kind of the micro sections of the colour wheel and looking at, you know, tertiary colours and this and that. And I was just thinking, yeah, you know, Isaac Newton, you know, he had, he had a point. He did a really good job with his prism. but he you know the fact that he reduced the number of colors to seven so that it would fit in with a a kind of with a theme that he had you know that seven is a very is a is a very satisfactory number it's a satisfactory number in music it's a satisfactory number in in classical mythology and and so on so that for a start makes me think well then that's not you know we need to be looking at looking at more you know I I would say I mean I don't want to get too boring or technical and it, it does explain a bit more in the book but um you know you look at Goethe who's you know, the German um Van Goethe, Van Goethe who's, who's known more as a poet but he he wrote a book of uh on colour theory later and his was much more about how colour his theory was colour affects your mood um colour colour makes you feel a certain way put on a certain colour jumper make you it make you feel terrible or it'll make you feel good I know if I put on something that's a really sort of weird kind of murky green it will make me feel really cross all day because I'm it looks terrible on me and so it's that you know what to cut what what responses what responses does a does a planting engender where has this come from what's the history of this color and also looking at colors that we forgot going back colors that we've forgotten um that we've we've forgotten the names of we've forgotten how to use an, an mm. example is is isabelline i don't know if it's isabelline and and named after in fact i talked about it on one of the um 8 a.m dog walks that i that i did on the, you know during lockdown but the fact that the color isabelline which is a kind of murky um kind of murky beige color i suppose it's a sort of dirty a dirty cr creamy color and it came from it's got and it, it was used it, it was the, the the name was used a lot and it came from 
the fact that um, Isabella, uh, I think she was the queen of uh, she was the queen of Spain, and she was her husband, the Archduke, um, went off to to battle somewhere. And Isabella, believing that the siege would be short-lived, she vowed she wouldn't change or wash her underwear until he won. <laughs> and so <laughs> Isabellian is the colour that the Queen's linens had become when the siege finally ended three years later. So apparently she didn't change her underwear for three years. <laughs> so imagine, imagine that. But anyway, so you know, so there are stories as well of, of colours that we've forgotten, but it's a really good colour to use for certain plants well, and, and i think what you you said is also true and it does need to be explored because i think there is a tendency when we we again sort of dumb down color no offense sir isaac but when we do dumb it down <laughs> to sort of the seven color kind of approach it doesn't take into account light and the light and the interplay mm. in the case of plants in particular most great plants that so many of us love are really a gradient and and very rarely a true primary color of any type. And that's something I wanted to just let you end with is just a little bit of, I think one of the great things you do in your work is, is take the time with color, with texture to create a sense of place. And so often I think that's an element of, of gardening. You mentioned it with a Moroccan style garden, you know, maybe in, you know, the, the the Chelsea part of London or something like that, it's like, okay, how does this fit the place okay. and the space? And how much of that influence as far as color and place and, and lighting and all of those components go into your thoughts and, and, and your thoughts in putting the book together, obviously, as well? Yeah, well, I suppose the greatest compliment I can have is if people, is when or you know some people say to me oh you don't have a distinctive style and I say yep and that is absolutely you know and they and we get clients because of that so they know that their garden is not going to be like the previous garden that I've designed um and I and I say it's because you know so every garden is different we all know it's every garden is different client is different every location is different every house is different so when I go and stand in that garden I'm immediately looking at the location thinking, well, I don't need to create, I'm not aiming for a pastiche. And if it's a lovely Georgian house, I'm not going to do a pastiche of a Georgian garden. But I am looking at what's beyond. So how can what I'm designing fit, work with the amazing oak trees that are in the distance? But also, how does it work with the, this, with the fact that this client is a, I don't know, that this one is a lawyer, that the client in this in a similar Georgian house 10 miles down the road is a is a musician you know how does that work what is that so and 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 it is extraordinary how so those two well I mean the houses will be different because they're both old but you know a similar architecture a similar size house and so on but of a similar value and a similar size of garden those two and I've got two in my head that I'm thinking of when I'm talking to you now their plantings are completely different the textures are different because it's a response and it, it's it comes from weeks and months of getting to know that client and talking to them and understanding their style choices and how they react to things and and really becoming you know hopefully becoming well dare I say it a friend but certainly someone who you know you spend a lot of time with and um and that's where those all come from and then, this goes back to what you were saying right at the very beginning about creativity and that 
whilst you can teach planting design, you then have to then let that student, you know, let that bird fly and they go off and discover, you know, go and discover nurseries, spend time in nurseries. I spent so much time in nurseries um, as a as a student when I was studying garden design, you know, understanding what looked good with what, what created a certain bill, what seemed quite classic, what seemed more relaxed, what might, you know, all of those things. Um, and yeah, that that's what happens. So it's, it's uh, as I said, going back to the beginning, creativity is key. Cross ties of these old abandoned rails Wondering about the stories they could tell I think of all the weight I carry on my own And I try to empathize with all they bear There's something about the sun that brings me back to life it's just like staring in your eyes And I can't tell you what it is I'm doing here All I know is nothing's felt so right So let me stay Feeling this way Everything you do is for you to 
is for you to decide.